And on our panel to review the papers this morning, Susan Mitchell, the health editor of the Sunday Business Post. Good morning, Susan. Uh, Jared Howland, a public affairs consultant and former senior political advisor. Morning, Jared. And Larry Donnelly, who is a law lecturer at NUIG, is after making the trip over. Good morning to you, Larry. Good morning, Jonathan. Now, lots to discuss in the papers. I'll just go through the front pages. First of all, the Sunday Independent is leading with the Garda strike. Left at the mercy of vile criminals, that headline I referenced earlier. Uh, Philip Ryan and Maeve Sheehan write, The Justice Minister, Francis Fitzgerald, has warned that communities will be left at the mercy of gangland violence and vile criminals seemingly her word, if 10,000 Gardaí take the unprecedented step of going on strike. In an interview with the Sunday Independent, Miss Fitzgerald turned up the pressure on rank and file to withdraw their threat to effectively stage strike action for four days next month. Suggestion there as well that the army might be needed to patrol streets amid the crisis. Um, delighted Dublin do it again is the subheading there in a picture of Philly McMahon of Dublin uh, with the Sam Maguire hoisted over his head in a a fairly understandably jubilant mood. Uh, not so jubilant, the front page picture in the Sunday Times. It was the, one of the many scraps they had in the pitch yesterday and fellas baiting the lard out of each other. That's the picture there below the headline, Dubs Dispense with the Mayo. Uh, uh, the Mayo. I don't know what they call it. The Mayo, but there you have it. Uh, Garthy aided drug dealer. A fines inquiry is the front page story on the Sunday Times. An internal investigation into allegations of Garda collusion in heroin dealing in a Midlands town has found evidence to substantiate claims made by a police whistleblower in 2014. But by far the most interesting headline in the front of any newspaper this morning is on the Sunday Times, uh, written by Nick Greenslade. Ireland captain wanted to knock out Alistair Campbell. Uh, This is Paul O'Connell, who has revealed that he came close to knocking out Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's former press secretary during the 2005 Lions tour in New Zealand. In his autobiography, The Battle, serialised exclusively in today's Sunday Times, the former Ireland captain explains he felt so insulted in a speech by Campbell uh, that he gave to players after they lost the first test to the All Blacks that he was going to, quote, find him and knock him out. There wouldn't be any need for questions or explanations. Everyone would know what it was for. Had Alistair Campbell known that, he had been on the first plane back out of that, I suspect, because <laughs> nobody in their right mind would take on Paul O'Connell, an angry Paul O'Connell at that. Sunday Business Post has a great exclusive interview with President Michael D. Higgins. Headline says, President Higgins warns of Trump threat and a climate of fear. In an interview with Michael Brennan, the paper's political editor, Michael D. Higgins has backed criticism of US Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump as President Higgins has spoken out on the need for compassion to be shown to refugees. But during his own presidential campaign, Trump, as has been pointed out, has stirred up a lot of anger. Michael D. Higgins saying that he has been impressed with the recent speech by United Nations Human Rights Chief who warned that Trump and other politicians are playing on popular prejudices and fears about migrants to win power. As Susan Mitchell, who's on the panel, has also a story on the front page there. Pro-life lobby is accused of misusing international research which we'll talk to Susan about later on. The Irish Mail on Sunday, Fine Gael's 100 million childcare sweetener. Uh, families earning up to 55 grand a year will get a break in the budget. Uh, they also report on what they describe as Enda Kenny's extraordinary meeting to cut a deal with independence. Of course the budget is on Tuesday week. And the Sunday world. I'm going to hazard a guess and say it's not going to shift a single copy in Mayo if this is the edition that's gone over 
there because all they have on the front page is blue in a row. It's a historic double for Gavin's dubs as 65-year Mayo curse continues. Not even a hint of a disappointed-looking Mayo player on the front page there. All happiness and smiles uh, from the Dublin players. And it was a great match, uh, which we will come back to a little bit later on, talking to Dave McIntyre. But just one story that has happened uh, in the last little while. Um, it is Theresa May, the British Prime Minister. We have been in this kind of false area where the British have decided that they want to leave the European Union but nothing has really changed because for now they're still in the European Union and all that's happened is we've had a a currency fluctuation. Well, we wanted to know when they're going to leave and it would appear now that Theresa May has set her sights on getting out in 2019 but to do so she is going to move on Article 50 as it's known by the end of March next year. And that's a lot sooner than a lot of people would have thought but it should mean that the Brits will be out before the next European Parliament elections. Theresa May will be speaking to the Conservative Party conference a little bit later on. Here she was speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC within the last hour. It's an important uh, measure that we're taking, it's an important step we're taking, because, first of all, it makes it very clear to the British people who voted for us to leave the EU, that is exactly what we will be doing. Uh, Secondly, it gives that greater degree of clarity about the sort of timetables that we're following. And crucially, if I may just, Andrew, it's important for us to set this out now so that we have the timing, so that when we leave the European Union, there's a smooth transition. I think that's important for us all, but particularly important, obviously, for the economy and for business. So that's it. Uh, The Brexit process will begin formally by March of next year. Gerard Howland, this will make it very real for everybody. We now have a date. We it's do. like a wedding. We now have a day for the wedding. We, we, we do when we've a, a, a two-year, two-and-a-half-year run-in, um, but also a, a definite date when it'll be over. I mean, just one thing that occurs to me immediately is on the back of Brexit, um, currency fluctuation but with sterling has been very appreciable, uh, where sterling was about 76 p- uh, pence, give or take a penny or two against the euro. It's now up about 85 or 86 pence. Uh, if that stays at that level, if it goes further, that has a real impact on the Irish economy. And one of the things that's been driving down sterling is uncertainty. And this certainty, uncertainty, I should say, will now become more intense. So in 2017, in 2018, as all of this is ongoing, the factor of uncertainty on our exports and on currency rates is an immediate something out there that's that's really impacting on our economy. Now, of course, my analogy of the wedding is wrong, that we have a date for the wedding, Mm. because Larry, what he actually has... a date for divorce. It's a date for the divorce. (laughs) And, And to be fair, what this is, it's called, and this is very British, the Grand Great Repeal Bill, um, which means that they are getting out and removing everything from the European Communities Act from 72 from the British statute books. It is all going to be gone. There is no coming back from this. And it, the die has very much been cast in in a way actually more, more so than the actual poll itself. Yeah, I, I think so in a way. I think what you said at the outset uh, that this is real. I, I suppose we had been living in this kind of weird zone where uh, this was all in the future. And indeed, uh, I would have been one of those people who maybe hoping against hope and choosing to ignore uh, sense and preferring nonsense was thinking that maybe 
maybe we mightn't have heard the last word on this, that this might go back to the British people somehow or another, uh, who realizing the magnitude of their decision might uh, render a different verdict. Uh, I think the, the interesting thing uh, to watch is going to be whether we have the so-called hard Brexit or the softer Brexit uh, in terms of the issue of immigration, which I think, um, you know, for the, for the government to make decisions in this regard, so many people in the UK voted on the basis of immigration. Uh, so the, the, the fallout from that, uh, I think, will be fascinating to monitor. I think, I mean, I think I read this morning another extract from what Theresa May was saying that on the free movement of people, they're not they're not going for that. They are going to impose a border, which is effectively what Theresa May is interpreting as the and, will of the people. And I think, I think, I think, sadly, uh, I think she's right from a political point of view. But again, uh, it plays into this grant, this bigger scheme of things in the, across the Western world, where we're seeing, uh, I suppose, the walls are coming up, you know, and we see the rise of the populist right and people uh, who are very unhappy uh, with. I suppose, the onward march uh, of globalization and the movement of people. So uh, it's troubling. And of course, as, as Jared says, uh, we need to, I suppose, in many ways, be thinking about uh, what impact it's going to have on us here. Uh, Susan Mitchell, um, I, you have to respect Theresa May, though, because she went in there. She could have fudged this. Um, she knew that the second she turned on the fan, the you-know-what was going to hit it. But she took a decision that this was the will of the people and she ran with it. Don't think she could have done anything other than that. You know, they they had a vote, they had a referendum on this issue, and this is how they how the people voted. Uh, she's it, it's it's taken slightly longer than I would have expected, and I think that, that many people expected initially for them to invoke this Article Fifty, because if you think about it, that's now not going to happen until sometime next year. Well, by March, I think now she's saying of next year. And that gives them another two years to negotiate their exit. So it's still some time away. Uh, The vote will have taken place in 2016 and they won't be exiting until 2019. So there's still quite a... A little bit of a gap. And there will be an election now soon afterwards as well for Theresa May. So if she manages to negotiate and it all goes well, she'll be able to claim all the credit. If it goes wrong, she's in trouble. Yes, and of course, as a former Home Secretary for six years, one thing she is personally expert in is the whole thing about border controls. I mean, this is her area of She special. didn't do a very good job at it, by all accounts. Well, she, she, cer- she certainly knows what she's talking about in terms of what the implications of those issues are. And I suppose from, a, from, from an Irish perspective, the issue is our own border would with, with Northern Ireland uh, and what, what for that thereafter and, and this is a great worry and a great concern for us. And the issue of border controls I think is something that's uh, you know creating huge issues all over Europe. Hungary is having a referendum um, on, as to whether or not they will accept the EU's quotas on migrants. So this is not something, I mean this is happening right across Europe. It's, it's or a many pretty offensive question that they're asking the people in Hungary as well from what I can make out. It's either you want them out or you, or, or, or you want them all in. And apparently there's only two or three thousand remaining uh, refugees in Hungary. But I mean this is an eerie reminiscence of the 1920s when amidst a sort of economic turmoil post the Wall Street crash you had a, the explosion of tariffs around the world. Uh, economic tariffs. It was a big contributory factor to, to mm. tension. And now this sort of this thing about but you know, the fear blocking the free movement of people as distinct from the free movement of goods. That at times of fear, in one way or another, people see to put up war, walls and borders, well, whether they're economic or whether they're against. There's people. a man we'll be talking about later on who has a plan for a particularly big wall. Um, the Garda issue is all over the papers this morning, Larry Donnelly. What stands out for you in terms of coverage? What stands out for me before I ask for your thoughts is the idea that we might have members of the army standing on street corners directing traffic 
Yeah, I, I think the the frightening vista for I think a lot of people uh, a lot of people that uh, the streets will be unpoliced or that the streets will be unsafe uh, for four Fridays in November I think is going to scare a lot of people. And I think uh, a lot of people, perhaps elderly people, especially uh, in rural Ireland, who would be very worried about the prospect of that and the prospect perhaps uh, of gangs etc. coming down and, and there being absolutely no uh, impediment uh, to to their doing what they like. So that's going to I, I think frighten some people. I suppose in the broader scheme of things. Uh, I think that the case for Gadi coming in uh, is very well made. I mean, the salary, to, to my way of thinking, is quite appalling. And I say that despite the fact that there are uh, still lots of people who want to do it. Uh, I only look at home. I mean, uh, whether the, how apt the comparison is or not I'm, not, I'm not sure. But the starting salary for a Boston police officer is $50,000 a year. Uh, that's quite a different range. Uh, and I think it reflects the value um, that is rightly put uh, on people who go out and do a very, very difficult job. Now, the, the following point, and Connor Brady talks about this, is that after the entry level things do get better. You do get paid better uh, and he points to a deeper malaise uh, within Angada Shikana that he points to that as one of the causes. So uh, it's a very, very difficult situation. But Susan, I mean, for, for me, what, when you go through the figures here, uh, and, and the Sunday Times do a nice job on page four of, of what they've actually turned down, which was the opportunity to mm-hmm. involve in the Workplace Relations Commission for the first time. Eight had. grand pension deal was there. Mm-hmm. And by my reckoning, those young guards, the ones who were on the really crap money, were on 24 grand, would have gotten a two grand increment and would have got four grand in terms of rent allowance, which would have got them closer to 30 grand, which still isn't great, but it's a big improvement on 24. And it doesn't seem like a particularly bad deal to me. I, I'd agree with Larry in that the starting salary at the moment for, for new recruits, at, I think it's 23,000, is very low when you consider bus dr- or Lewis drivers uh, start on 32,000. Now there seems to be that that doesn't make sense uh, to my reckoning. But the other thing that I think is interesting about the, the guarded dispute is there's a huge appetite. The number of applicants for mm. places, uh, mm. I think last year, yeah. there were thousands for, for a couple of hundred of applicants. And there will be thousands on existing more. terms and conditions. Yeah. Many more want the jobs than there are places available. And the government is in a really difficult bind here because just in purely practical terms, it cannot concede this pay claim without opening the door to similar mm. claims across the public yeah. service. And I suppose we as a society have to decide, you know, are the fruits of the recovery better spent? And Stephen Collins actually had a very good piece in the Irish Times in this yesterday on better public services or on public servants. Jared Howland, when you read the, the language used by Francis Fitzgerald mm-hmm. there, uh, you know, talking about vile criminals and the streets being mm-hmm. at their mercy, and, uh, and indeed Fianna Fáil, Jim O'Callaghan, agreeing that if the guards go on strike, they'll be breaking the law. It's a difficult one for politicians to deal because they want to be seen to support the police mm-hmm. force because that's important for democracy. But at the same time, uh, you know, they have to ramp the pressure up on the guards so that ultimately the state wins. Well, how could the police after this, you know, credibly police a major public demonstration uh, that was getting out of hand? How could, in those circumstances, the uniform be respected uh, if the people wearing that uniform had, in Jim O'Callaghan's words, broken the law? As Conor Brady said, and Larry quotes him already, I mean, this will do enormous reputational damage uh, to the police force thereafter if it happens. There's no getting away from this. And in terms of the Boston PD, I mean, can you strike if you're a US police officer, Larry? Yes, you can. And yeah. do they do it? It doesn't, ha- it doesn't happen. I'll tell you why. Because uh, at least in Massachusetts, public employee unions are so much stronger than they are here. No politician in his or her right mind would dare to cross the cops, the fire, the MBTA. It just wouldn't happen. 
But is it is it absolutely certain that individual guardee who strike would be breaking the law? Because I've read pieces that have said that you know they're excluded from you know these from these activities or from encouraging um, guardee to strike. So in other words, their leaders would be at risk of breaking I, I the law, but not hap- necessarily the individuals. Happens, I'm not, Larry, I'm not you're, you're the legal expert yeah. here, but yeah. my understanding is that guards do not have the same rights and protections under the law as everybody else does, which means that they are in theory at least exposed to liability for going on strike. Yeah, the, the legal position is muddy. What does seem clear is that if the organisation uh, say the GRA or whatever, if they're there to kind of cause a strike or encourage uh, individual guardie to go out on strike, that there is like, that that's clearly illegal under the relevant pieces of legislation. However, as you say, the case of individual guardie uh, is quite different and the picture is quite muddy. Uh, and indeed, I re- read a few pieces on this uh, and the legal experts on this particular in this particular area uh, are divided and uncertain and they're actually quite unwilling to make a call as to whether uh, civil liability could be incurred for individual guardi who go off and strike. The, the real problem, Ger, for government here is that this has to be de-escalated, that they have to take the steam out yeah, of this very and, and there is some time, uh, uh, so that is the one hope uh, here um, because there's only a lose-lose scenario here uh, you know, for for the force, for its reputation. And you can imagine even low-level things like, you know, boisterous teenagers on a day like that getting up to mischief, knowing nobody can call the guards. And then you go to to, to potentially catastrophic levels. And there's going to be, what, 110, 150 guardies, senior guys, the sergeants, the inspectors, they'll be the front line on the day responding to all of those calls when they come in. I think there's something else in parallel here within, within, within the guards, that the cultural challenges that are being visited upon on Garda Siakona in terms of transparency. I think uh, some people who have been in the guards a long time are finding that cultural challenge very difficult. And I think there's a sense of being put upon. Um, and I think the two things coming together have contributed to, to an atmosphere of truculence. In other words, that the, 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 the centre of gravity traditionally in Garda Siakona was interior, whereas now because of transparency, because of the Garda authority, because of the Garda ombudsman, there is, there is a lot more pressure on what you do sure, from what's outsiders. That, what's that got to do with their money? That's uh, sorry, I, it's a lot to do, I think, with the atmosphere in Ongardashir Corner and the coincidence of the two issues coming together over time I think is leading to a particular perspective of truculence. And there is uh, you could call it a malaise which is something very similar to what's in the HSE Susan that you know it's a contrast that many people want to join the guards but nobody wants to join the HSE yet the parallels are quite well, obvious. It's, it's interesting you say that because we were just discussing there the number of applicants that there have been to join the Gardaí whereas that is not something that you're seeing um, in certain certain sectors within the HSE, for example, post hospital consultant posts, you know there are there have been cases, or there were cert- about one in four hospital consultant posts advertised last year did not receive a single applicant. Some of these were some of the for, were for some of the biggest acute teaching hospitals in the country. In the past, there would have been eight and ten applicants, people experts looking to come home from overseas. These posts are no longer attractive. We obviously have a difficulty in respect of uh, enticing nurses uh, to to return home or indeed to stay. But but, but what what I find fascinating about that is that 
you have a relatively short-termist approach when the, with these new recruits saying, oh, mm. this is terrible, I'm not going to get paid enough for this job. But they're ignoring the fact that it is a career that could last them for 40 years. And it's not always I, going sorry, to be that bad. These people going into any public service job in their early 20s are the last known members of our civilization who have the prospect <laughs> of a defined benefit pension. Yeah. It's extraordinary privilege. The budget is now next week because it's Tuesday week when Michael Noonan and Pascal Donoghue will stand up in the Dáil. Fianna Gael will write it, the Independents will have a contribution and Fianna Fáil will rubber stamp it. We are in a new and very strange political age and we'll get at least one budget out of this government by the looks of it. Uh, as usual, they are leaking like the proverbial sieve to the newspapers. Uh, the Mail seems to have a, a, a good chunk of it, Susan. Um, they're, they're talking about uh, childcare package being uh, family is earning up to 55 million uh, 55 grand 55 million would be nice hmm. 55 grand a year um, they're going to benefit from a child care package um, there's the Taoiseach intervened there because Catherine Zippone um, had an issue uh, seemingly over the rate at which it would be paid they've also got some other um, leaks there the 100 million euro child care package but there'll be no increase in child benefit which no. would be interesting. So that means only some people would benefit. There's no mm. universal um, translation of that. Um, the the M- M20 motorway between Cork and Limerick, which is down the list of priorities, that's going to be reactivated, they say. A hardship year income average tax measure uh, for farmers. Um, Fianna Fáil are pushing for an investment in the third level sector and might actually have to settle for four euro increase in the old age pension and not five. I don't think many old age pensioners would quibble too much because they're still getting a four euro increase, which Fianna Fáil would claim credit for. And it'll probably be better than than what most of us will get in the budget. Um, but yeah, there seems to be some doubt about the, the five euro that uh, Fianna Fáil were particularly enthusiastic about for, for pensioners. Uh, what I'm surprised about actually, or one of the things I'm surprised about, and Hugh O'Connell has a piece on this in the Business Post, is the tiny rise in the cost of cigarettes. Uh, they've you know consistently gone up by quite a bit and apparently the excise duty is only going up by about 30 or 50 cent, which is, uh, is tiny. When I think you it's symbolic though, it's going to push it above 11 It is, euro that's right, packet. that's right. Um, and then uh, other things that have been reported today are the fact that the sugar tax isn't going to come in until 2018, so it'll be announced, but it won't actually materialise until the following year. Why do you think, Susan, that they are so opposed to introducing the sugar tax? Because it, this is what, the fifth attempt to get it in in the budget. They're finally going to agree to it, but they're not going to raise a red cent for another year? I honestly don't know, but I'm not aware of a huge body of evidence to support claims that a sugar tax actually works. Uh, so I don't know, maybe there's some resistance on on the back of that. But and obviously as well, we have a huge, huge food industry here. Uh, let's not kid ourselves and a you know, huge manufacturing industry here that are obviously putting huge pressure on the government not to do this. So there's probably multiple factors at play. Jared, when we talk about childcare, because mm. this is obviously they're going to make a big sales pitch on mm. this, saying this is the start of something fantastic. Uh, they they to, uh, introduced another year of childcare last year, which actually didn't happen in a lot of cases because the infrastructure wasn't in sure. place in time. But this idea that they're going to give families so two incomes mm. up to fifty-five grand, they're going to get childcare. So that's two incomes on less than the average industrial wage, by my reckoning. So therefore, there's a whole section of society that won't benefit from this at all. And probably the ones with the bigger mortgages and the bigger outgoings that would need it. Well, first of all, there's nothing you can do meaningfully in one budget on any big issue uh, that's going to tackle everything. If you want really to, ser- to be serious about childcare, the first thing you have to is stand back and say, this will take years. 
secondly, if it is true, as predicted in in the mail on Sunday, that there will be no uh, benefit on child benefit, but that the money available will go into child care, I say that's a very, very good thing because child benefit is not targeted. It goes on the same basis uh, to everyone and channeling such resources, and they're very limited this year, Jonathan, as may be available to begin something that may be subsequently expanded seems to me in principle to be the so right th- thing. So this is very much going to be sold as a starting point? Well, I don't know how they'll sell it, but I'll tell you that, I mean, it seems to make sense to me, and I think unrealistic expectations on what can be done on a big-ticket issue like childcare on a single budget, you know, needs to be tackled head on. Well, the real problem, Larry, is that you're going to have people walking away from this budget going, well, there was shag all in that for me. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Jared hits the nail on the head. The, the fact is, um, there's just not a whole lot to play with here. Uh, and that that's the bottom line. And, and again, uh, I suppose the... the the further complicating factor, I suppose, is this uh, curious little arrangement we have that we call a government, uh, and everyone <laughs> is looking to have uh, his or her imprint on it. So that makes it uh, complicated. And at the end of the day, the pie is actually very small. Uh, I won't use the word fiscal. Well, I just did use the word fiscal space. <laughs> no, no, we're all but, back in the but, fiscal but space the, now. It's fine. The, it's lovely. The pie is better. But the, the, the pie is small enough to divvy up. Uh, and again, I think there was a good piece. Pat Leahy had a good piece in the Irish Times yesterday where he said that the word fair keeps being repeated. And everyone says, fair, it's going to be fair, it's going to be fair and I suppose at the end of the day uh, what's fair depends on who you talk to and indeed uh, there's a lot of people are being talked to throughout government uh, and indeed uh, outside of government. What is interesting Jared, uh, is that the, the mood music around this is, is quite different to previous years, there's, mm-hmm. there's no panic, there is no imminent massive threat to the economy as there was previously, well there probably is with Brexit but you know we, we are at the end of a cycle of crisis budgets is there an air of normality about this one? Well, there's never quite normality normality in politics, uh, but I, I think that the worst of the crisis is over for now, until the next one, of course. Uh, what worries me about the, the budget is the, the fact that we spent this entire conversation about spending, but actually nobody's talking about where the money comes from. And the money comes from either taxes or borrowing, and if it's borrowing, of course, it eventually have to be paid back with interest through taxes. And a feature of budgets, and predicted to be a feature of this budget as well, is a further narrowing of the tax base. And that is a cumulative repetition of the worst uh, trait of what got us deepest into the crisis in the first place. For example, taking more people out of USC, that is an unchallenged wisdom that is actually, when you drill down into it, fundamentally wrong. How come how, that is we funda- have- how is it fundamentally wrong to take people out of a, a, what is arguably an unfair universal style tax that they pay regardless of their income? Well, you say that it's unfair that a tax is universal. I say it is unfair that a tax is not universal and that everyone in society has to pay something. I also say that it is a fact that by narrowing the tax base, when the shock came, and inevitably there will be another shock, Jonathan, the economy, and by definition those most dependent on the public services provided by the economy will be most vulnerable. Mm. Now, I have to say, and, and we'll go on to talk about uh, repeal the 8th in a moment, but in the context of this discussion, is it not incredibly frustrating, Susan Mitchell, that we have local governments, therefore, <laughs> that are reducing the amount of money they're taking in in property tax because it is politically expedient to do so? And there's a table in one of the newspapers today that goes on, it's in the Sunday Times, that goes on about saying how fantastic it is uh, that local authorities are cutting that money. And I'll, I'll, I'll pull the figures here because they are quite stark. It's on page 6 uh, of the Sunday Times. Um, you have 
Um, Dublin City Council reduced by 15%. Um, Dunleary Ratdown reduced by 15%. Fingal reduced by 15%. Only three councils, Galway County, Limerick and Wexford, have decided to actually increase their local authority um, income uh, under local property tax. And, and they're effectively relying on the big urban areas. And only the Green Party, by the way, to their credit, has taken a principal stand in opposing this everywhere in every instance. Uh, the Labour Party in some councils has sort of taken a, a middle-of-the-road position and let's not take all of the 15% that's available to councils to cut. But there's another thing outside the picture frame of this issue is that, of course, the 15% that councils can at their discretion reduce is based on the existing property charge, which itself is frozen until 2019, which was another mistake about narrowing the tax base. Because, Jonathan, fundamental fact, you want more money for services? You want to cut taxes. You cannot do either or both of those while you cut the tax base at the same time. Is there not Fact. an inherent problem with you a system that we have set up whereby the CEOs of a local authority can say to the councillors who are elected, go in and say to 30 or 40 men and women, we need this money because you want us to provide X amount of new houses mm. for the homeless. And the same councillors are there going, well, I can't go back to my the people who put me in and say, well, I'm increasing the local property tax by 15%. That's going to be very unpopular. So, you know, forget about the homeless there. We're doing this because it's politically expedient. To the credit of many councils, that's exactly what they have done. And if you look around, you correctly quoted councils, Dublin City Council for one, where, where they've taken the cut and run. Uh, and my view, it's absolutely disgraceful that it has happened. But councils around the country uh, have not done so. So that it's a mixed picture. Um, and Larry, it, it's one that is going to continue because we've got another list of councils that uh, have, have left it the same. But you have the pressure that's constantly mounting on, on local politicians to do this. Is it the pressure there or is this just political expediency on their part? It's, it's probably a bit of both. And I think there's also uh, some might be something of an urban versus rural, rural, <laughs> urban versus rural divide on this as well. Uh, and I think in the sense that people uh, down the country don't see a lot of bang for their buck in terms of what they pay for property taxes in terms of the services they receive, and, and they would ju- they would compare that uh, with the services that people like like public transit, for instance, have access to mm-hmm. that live in in urban areas. I think that's a live part of it. But uh, I mean, just one thing I- I'll say about the the property tax, and again, I, I keep bringing us to black holes, uh, and I juxtapose this w- with Irish Water. Um, the one thing uh, about Irish Water is at least you were getting people were get are getting a tangible good for the tax they pay. What I think a lot of people say about the property taxes, they don't see, and they've they've started to pay property tax, they don't see anything tangible mm. coming from paying that. Well, I think you might understand why the Dubs are so reluctant to pay it, because uh, wh- what the article goes on to point out is homeowners in Dublin and in Kildare and Weath and Mick, Meath and Wicklow, Galway, City, Clare and County Cork, they're the main funders of the system. So a fifth of the money that comes from those areas goes into a central pot. I remember we discussed this and I put this to Phil Hogan at the mm. time and he kind of said, oh, it's not a big deal, but a fifth of the money from the urban areas. But they're, they, they, they're the same people who want the childcare out of the central pot. So nobody you know, remembers to make that point. Let's talk. It's about not a bottomless pot. Yes, it right. only has in the pot what you put into it. And you can put into it one way or another, but you don't put in, you can't take out. And that's the missing part of the budgetary conversation across the board. But nobody wants to talk about that, Jerry. Well, I want to talk about it. <laughs> and I won't stop talking about it. Well, at least you're here to do it. Um, the Citizens' Assembly, that is going to take place this month. 
It's September, October the 15th, so it's, what, two weeks' time. We're going to get 99 people from around the country in a room, selected randomly to sit there and discuss what will happen to the Eighth Amendment in Bunrock, Naharan. Um, Susan, you've written extensively about this this week in the Sunday Business Post, and you have tried as best you can to take the emotion out of it. That, for a journalist, is a very difficult thing to do because you're going to be accused by one side or the other of not doing it right. You're right. You're invariably accused, and, and I have been in the past, um, by, by both both sides in the campaign of being biased. And this is something that well, I think all journalists covering what, covering what is a hugely emotive and divisive issue face. But what I tried to do today um, in a piece for our magazine was to look at the medical and scientific facts around abortion what's happened in other countries. So, for example, we examined the issue. What does the science tell us about things like fetal consciousness, fetal pain, fatal fetal abnormalities, issues like that? So we tried to do a little bit more than just say, is it right, is it wrong? You know, which tends to have been, I suppose, at, at the core of the debate so far and looked at issues that I think are probably of interest to many people who are maybe somewhat undecided or who don't know a huge amount about the science or the medicine. You, you spoke to some people who had been quoted and who were unhappy with how they were quoted. That's right. So um, as part of that, you know, as I said there, I looked at fatal fetal abnormalities and there was a very big study published in 2012 in the British Journal of Gynaecology that's been widely cited in the debate here. And it's a nuanced issue and I hope I get it across you know, properly on air. But effectively what these researchers said was that to label every single one of these awful and terribly difficult conditions fatal is a little bit of a misnomer in that they said they're nearly universally fatal, but not necessarily so. And they were talking about language and they were really speaking to a medical audience about how they should talk to parents who are facing these really difficult, difficult decisions. But that has been taken, they feel, this is according to the researchers themselves, and twisted in the Irish debate to suggest that there is no such thing as a fatal fetal abnormality. And that is not what they said. Um, and one of the there were three uh, three co-authors of that um, that particular report, and they also put and they've obviously been following the debate in Ireland quite closely. And they said, you know, that they have seen cases where people are pointing to in their report, for example, they said that there are some of these awful conditions. There have been exceptions, and they're tiny, where a child might live till the age of three or ten or whatever it might be. But they're a fraction of the overall number. And these cases have been presented as if, you know, every child has this possibility, which is not the case. And are they offended by that? Or is it a case that they were even aware that they were being misquoted? Oh, they were they were aware of it, yes. Because when I, when I contacted them, I contacted them just to ask them, to, to explain a little bit, to ensure I was getting my facts right. Because one of the things that has also been claimed, aside from the fatal fetal abnormality um, issue, is that women suffer psychological risk after an abortion. And Cora Sherlock of the Pro-Life Campaign cited a study that was published by a professor, Mika Gisler, in Finland. And when I contacted him, he said, my study is being misused. That is not what I said. I said that, yes, there is evidence that there is a higher suicide rate after women have an abortion. But I made it very, very clear that this was due to other factors and not the abortion itself. This, Jared Howland, goes mm. to the centre of what this debate is, mm. which is the middle ground, which you clearly identify, mm. needs to 
decide on this uh, for any kind of constitutional change to happen or not. Mm. Um, But it is very difficult when you are in a cloud of statements that are made and you can't necessarily immediately verify them as part of that debate. It is it goes to the core of what is a very difficult issue, Jared. Yeah, and we switch topics from one which I was very strident on to one which I will be very reticent about because I think in the middle of this is, is a muddled, reticent middle of people who are not marching, who are not on, like, keyboard warriors on social media, who are really quite perplexed, who are reluctant to come to a conclusion and if and when a referendum is held, will we'll do so with considerable difficulty one way or the other. And I would count myself in that space, frankly. Um, so when somebody like Susan is explaining in her piece today the nuances in, in words like fatal fetal abnormalities, which people like me previously would have thought was, you know, more cut and dry, you know, you're further perplexed. And then you think of things that I'm very aware of, for example, that you have now in in a small number of European countries legalised euthanasia and how that feeds into a whole culture and how that culture evolves over decades. And I'm not sure I'm very comfortable with that culture and where it's potentially going in, in, in the longer term. And I'm conscious that the decision that we will make here about the Eighth Amendment, which, by the way, I have no doubt is really imperfect, should never have been put in in the first place. I am sure, for sure about that. But I'm asking myself, you know, what will come instead? And no government that can propose an abolition of the Eighth Amendment is going to get away with not putting its alternative on the table. Larry... What has happened here is we are now considering a law that was introduced by many people who have probably now passed from mm. this world in 1982 and we are mm-hmm. dealing with the consequences of that. And How much do those who passed this amendment in the first place have to bear for the moral quandary that the nation has found itself in? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a fair question. I, I think anybody, uh, even people who might still, you know, for for various reasons, support the Eighth Amendment, will will admit that uh, it's it's far from perfect, and it, you know, indeed, some of what it was intended to do to, to accomplish, uh, it didn't. But but I think in terms of this debate now, uh, and I suppose especially in this era of post-truth politics, uh, I think the fact it has to be facts. We need to have facts in the arena, and that has to be at the heart of this. And I think some of what Susan said. Uh, hit upon that. And the second thing I think we need to try to do uh, is to have an element of civility uh, in this debate. Uh, One of the things that that really gets me, uh, I suppose, particularly on social media, is that it's very easy to get shouted down. People who have viewpoints one way or the other, the, the extremes on both sides, and this is this is what makes abortion such a vexed issue. The extremes on both sides, one side looks solely at the woman, one side looks solely at the unborn child. And I think most people in this middle uh, see, can see both or can see elements uh, of both. Uh, and I think that the civility has to be there. And I think Susan rightly alluded to the fact that uh, the anti-abortion side does tend to, uh, or is at least open to the accusation, of cherry-picking facts. Uh, I would say on the other side, uh, for instance, social media is a very, very tough place for anybody with, res- with, with entirely legitimate reservations about abortion. It's a very cold place. We were talking last week about the, the march that happened last Saturday week. Now, Ronan Mullen is writing about that in the Sunday uh, Independent today, and he says, uh, we see massive global <coughs> standards in the way abortion stories are covered. Last weekend's pro-choice march got generous coverage on RTE, but not the fact that the organisers got a lower attendance than they'd hoped for and not the hideous message on some of their placards. Uh, That's the point Ronan Mullen was making. But to pick up on what you said, Larry, in that Twitter space, 
you would have sworn that it was as big a march as, as the number of people that turned up to see the Pope in the Phoenix Park if you just observed it from that space. So again, we have to bear in mind that there are so many others out there who will make their mind up based on probably what's going to come out of this convention. Yeah, absolutely. And, and where, you know, to, to, to look into the future, I mean, where, where I suspect this consensus exists is that uh, people, I think the consensus is probably for repeal of the Eighth Amendment and then for an, a regime of, of limited abortions in, for instance, fatal fetal abnormalities, rape and incest. That's where I suspect the plurality is. And there's a long road to travel before we get mm. there, Susan. Briefly. And I think there's, a, there's an interesting, Ronan Mullen has a, an interesting piece in the Sunday Independent today, a, a, an opinion piece. And there's elements of his piece that I would certainly agree with, but there are also pieces in there that are medically inaccurate. And this is really detrimental to the debate. And if I can point out one thing he says in there, he says, you know, should we hide the fact that the baby recoils during the procedure? Now, about 90 percent of abortions are carried out before 12 weeks in the UK. There a fetus, and this is what the science tells us, this is not me, does not feel pain and is not conscious at that point. So this is this is misleading stuff. There's another piece, you know, where he says um, doesn't that sad little story in which a sick unborn baby was denied the dignity of being allowed to reach a natural end illustrate how heartless the debate is. In cases of fatal fetal abnormalities, he needs to educate himself more here because I spoke to these doctors. Some of these babies are born in pain. Some of these women are and, and men, their partners, are weighing up decisions around, OK, I'm however many weeks pregnant. Um, I, you know, I, I do I proceed with a pregnancy in which this baby is going to have absolutely no quality of life, heart conditions, brain conditions. Some of them are born with broken bones throughout their body. This is the level of pain they experience. It's not black and white in the way it's presented on either side. OK, well, Ronan Mullen, as I said, that article is in the Sunday Independent if you want to read that. We're going to hear more from our panel in just a minute. We'll talk about Donald Trump. Richie McCormick from Off the Ball, the front page of the Sunday Times. What a great story about Paul O'Connell. Yeah, um, Paul O'Connell almost lived out the dream of many's the person on these islands within the past decade and a half. Um <laughs> On the 2005 live you're, you're a tall man, but I'd say yourself and Alistair Campbell would be a fair fight. Uh, cheers for that. I'm not sure whether I should come away from that particularly grief, but there we go. Um, yeah, basically on the 2005 Lions tour, this is all part of the serialisation of O'Connell's book, The Battle, in the Irish Times, uh, the Sunday Times today. And he's talking about the Lions tour, and ha- after one of the tests, Alistair Campbell was brought in to give a pep talk to the team, and it didn't really go all that well. He's pretty much started off by saying that he knew next to nothing about rugby uh, but he knew what it felt like to be under serious pressure and he obviously cited the 97 general election over in the UK and trying to battle the Conservatives and everything you need to do to get over the line over there and he told us in every campaign says O'Connell and every crisis there comes a moment when the people in the thick of it realise they need to dig deep or they're in serious trouble he talked about Northern Ireland and then Kosovo and he then said he didn't get that feeling when he looked at us he didn't have the sense that we were fighting back after the defeat to the All Blacks uh, which is probably not the words you want to uh, send over to a, a, a gaggle of uh, strapping rugby Yes, rather broad individuals. Yeah, pretty much. And after this, this kind of rankled with O'Connell. He had been taking, he says, by his own admission, and I don't think the makers of it would thank him too greatly for the reports today in the paper, this energy drink called Focus, which had pretty much boosted him with caffeine and heightened everything. So after a training session, he was bullying about what uh, Campbell had said to the group and had decided that he was going to go over and knock Alistair Campbell out. (sighs) 
Now, he decided to talk himself out of it because obviously it wouldn't have been a great idea. No, no, that, <laughs> um, yeah, that, that wouldn't have gone down well. What else in the papers caught you right? Uh, there's lots and lots again about the, the Ryder Cup and obviously with uh, Europe trying to battle back and beat the US over in Hazeltine and they're being helped somewhat by the rather boisterous crowd. We know PJ Willis, Danny's brother during the week, wrote a piece. He did warn us of this. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and it's nice to know that the Hazeltine crowd are living up to expectations. What, what is the score going into the final round? I'll have to double check that now because I've been so ensconced in O'Connell stuff. And we're, we're up by three. We're up by three. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Larry. And the, the we, by the way, is referring to his, yes. home, his home country. I could see a slight shift in the chair when I was talking about PJ Willis' piece there. But yeah, it's it's fully within Europe's grasp to get this back. I mean, they just need 14 and a half. What is it to get it over the line? So yeah, to, uh, to win for Europe would be particularly sweet. To do it on US soil is always brilliant. To do it with the background it's of these crowd troubles. It's a lot of work, hilarious. though. A lot of work. It is, but they've got the players, they've got the horses to do it. So I figure they might do. Okay, lots still to come uh, on the All Ireland. We'll be talking more about that later on in the Premier League as well. Which match is our feature match? We've got two matches. We've got uh, Manchester United Stoke. Dave's going to be there pretty much from the off from 12 o'clock today. And then following that, we're off to White Hart Lane with uh, Tottenham versus Man City, top two. And we'll be talking to Dave at Old Trafford about the All Ireland yesterday from one great stadium to another. Richard McCormick, thanks very much uh, for that. Here's Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump from the debate on Monday. Maybe he doesn't want the American people, all of you watching tonight, to know that he's paid nothing in federal taxes because the only years that anybody's ever seen were a couple of years when he had to turn them over to state authorities when he was trying to get a casino license and they showed he didn't pay any federal income tax. So that makes if me he's smart. paid... That makes me smart, says the Donald. Uh, Larry, the, the reason we're talking about this is because the, uh, the Times in New York um, has produced some kind of document that found out that he basically made a loss in the mid-90s of $916 million, which is, let's face it, a pretty big hit even for a man of his wealth. But that would have meant he could have legally avoided paying federal income taxes for up to 18 years. So he didn't pay a dime. Yeah, and I I think now we know the answer as to why he's been so reticent to uh, release any of his tax returns. So uh, I I don't think it comes as any great surprise that his tax affairs uh, are very, very complicated and that there might be some, uh, at least on the surface, dodgy deals. The question politically becomes, what's the fallout for him from this? Uh, And indeed, we've learned so much about him or heard so much and people knew a lot before the campaign uh, none of it seems to have damaged him but what I'll say is this incident his poor performance in the debate uh, and his his row during the week with a former Miss Universe contact, con- contestant all of this stuff conveniently found by the Democrats yes uh, <laughs> but all of this stuff uh, puts a ceiling uh, on his support in my view uh, and again this point can't be made enough is that his path to the White House remains very, very narrow when compared with Hillary Clinton's because of the Electoral College and secondly, because of her get-out-the-vote operation. There's a brilliant Saturday Night Live sketch uh, that went out last night in the States uh, that has Alec Baldwin playing Trump and they recreated this. It's it's brilliant because all they have is Hillary laughing loudly going. There was, at one point, the moderator in the sketch says, uh, "We, you want two minutes to you? And he says, no, no, I want him to keep going for another two minutes <laughs> because he's doing such a great job on my behalf, which I think was the outcome of the debate. Jeremy. Yes, I mean, sometimes in politics, you know, news stations like uh, News Talk constantly get telephone calls from irate press officers. How dare you have the other shower all on the, it and all, all the rest. sweetness and light, all those press officers. Oh, yeah, well, they weren't in my time. <laughs> but, um, of course, there's sometimes, you know, let that person on as long as they like. Mm-hmm. Yes, we'll, we, we'll stay home today. We have a phrase, give, give, them, give them enough rope. Give them enough rope. And I think Donald 
perhaps is one of those but you know it's not over uh, there is a very peculiar mood in our times and until that man is defeated I won't rest easy and I, I you know I'm just never I'm just not quite sure of anything That's, Susan our own president who stays out of affairs without um, saying the say so of the government has actually in your paper today had a bit of a cut off the Donald as well He has that's right he did a big interview with uh, Michael Brennan our political editor and has expressed his concern and his fears around the language you know the, the hateful language used by Donald Trump uh, well consistently I, I was going to try and point out a couple of occasions but actually it's just no, no, it's uh, just been consistent it, throughout consistent. the campaign and his life uh, but it's very interesting to see the president uh, weigh into this uh, because obviously it's a huge this, this is a very political thing to do he's come in he's backed criticism that was made by uh, the head of the UN about Trump so yeah I, I, I reckon it'll get some uh, some pick up in the States very good. Well, we've been making news across the states this week as well. Larry, you, you as the only person here who probably has a vote in this particular election, mm-hmm. have you cast your ballot? I've yet? already voted. Yeah. Right, again, you're not going to tell us, are you? I voted for Hillary there Clinton. You go. They've got to love the Americans, they'll tell you. If that was always <laughs> where, no, that's between me and the ballot box. Um, we'll leave it there. Our panel this morning, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUIG Galway and a Hillary Clinton supporter, Jared Howland, public affairs consultant and former senior political advisor, and Susan Mitchell, health editor of the Sunday Business Post. Thanks very much for joining us, guys.